Hey, you're listening to the Viable Markets Podcast. I'm your host, Chris White. Welcome to Masters of Market Structure. Pleased to be sitting with CEO of ChartIQ, Dan Schleifer. Um, Dan and I have known each other for probably a little bit over a year now. Yeah. Um, but we were introduced uh, through a common VC, which is always how great relationships start. Um, and you know, when I when I first took a look at Chart IQ, it was just uh, completely impressed. But then fell in love with the one of the things that you guys were building, which was something called Finsemble through a, through a demo video, which just talks to you about the power of YouTube. But um, Dan, I, I always like to kick off Masters of Market Structure with just hearing a little bit more about the origin story of the people who are uh, building the new things that are going to define how markets work. So. Let's start with your origin story. Like, how did you get into the idea that you were going to ruin your personal finances and start, start a startup? People always ask me that, especially talking, speaking of investors, they always kind of wonder the backstory. I'm like, I feel like there should be a better origin story of being really drunk in a bar and making poor life choices of how I'm going to run my bank account as close to zero as is absolutely possible for as long as I can. Some sort of um, you know what I do to deserve this kind of way. Um, the the story goes you know about six and a half years ago. I was living in Chicago. Uh, I was actually outside of capital markets at the time. Uh, my background's enterprise software, and I had worked for small to mid-sized software companies for years and years, uh, generally in product. So kind of being the guy who was responsible for the vision of a product line, figuring out what customers need, where the market's going what the competition's doing, uh, and then coming up with a strategy for what we were going to build and how we would take it to market. And uh, along that path, for the 15, 20 years I did it, uh, just developed a real passion around data visualization. Uh, it was just kind of one of those like dorky things where if you go on my bookshelf at home, like it's just data visualization books and cookbooks. Um, and those are kind of my two things. So, so I kind of want to I want yep. to ask you about that. Like, what aspect of data visualization did you fall in love with? Because th- there are certain areas where it clearly has taken hold, and I can't imagine the market without it. Um, and then there are other areas where it's just it's like people are, are learning from scratch. So, what yep. what about data visualization did you fall in love with? Yeah. So for me, and I've now worked in three different industries in in enterprise infosec. Uh, in sales enablement and CRM and then capital markets. The interesting thing for me was that uh, in all three of those, just massive exhaust streams of data, right? Huge piles of data that nobody knows what to do with. Everybody's trying to get insight and people are plowing ungodly amounts of money into AI, machine learning, data science, whatever kind of label you would put on that 10 years ago versus today. Um, And fundamentally, people still just aren't getting answers to their questions. And so what I found interesting about DataViz was that it was a really simple, relatively low-tech way to take large amounts of data and make it instantly intuitive for a user. Right? You're actually harnessing the power of their brain and the way that we've evolved and the way that our eyes and our brain work together to find those patterns and see things in the data as opposed to spending millions of dollars on PhDs and quants and data scientists and all this kind of stuff. So I liked that idea of computationally simple, but leveraging the human brain and what it's really good at. Well, you know, the, the, the company that I'm building also relies on data visualization. And I guess part of it, I feel like I've been 
blessed with having a very simple-minded brain because if I was a quant, then data visualization wouldn't really matter to me as much because I would be able to rein man out like what's going on with massive amounts of data. So are you of the more simple-minded variety? Yeah. That's why. <laughs> no, I absolutely am. I, I fall in the same camp as you. And so I think that's what I find interesting about it is that if you do data viz right, you can show it to anyone, show the results to anyone, and they will instantly understand what it is that you're trying to convey. And you don't need to be Rain Man with a bunch of computers and algos and all this kind of stuff. So what is doing data vision right? Because you mentioned something being intuitive. And like I'll often say to people, I don't know how the people who designed like iOS for the uh, for the iPad, you know, didn't win some sort of science prize because everyone from three to ninety-three can instantly pick it up and use it. There are no instructions. So being able to build something very intuitive is incredibly hard. Like, do you have any any guidelines for how you come up with data visualization and product? Yeah, so I mean, there are a lot of people that are a lot smarter about me, uh, uh, a lot, I can't even get a sentence out, uh, making my own point, a lot smarter than me at how to approach that kind of systematically, uh, hence the bookshelf full of inspiration that I have so at give, home. So give me, give me a plug for a book that you've read that you think is like uh, so, the Bible on data viz, because yes. I'm going to buy it. So the, the, the two authors that I would check out, the classic one is uh, Edward Tufte, T-U-F-T-E, T-U-F-T-E, correct. And then the other one is Stephen Few, F-E-W. Okay. Um, and there are a bunch, and I'll, I'll send you a list uh, as a follow-up item. But those two, if you're going to like, hey, I want to go on Amazon, order a couple of books, those are the, the two names to start with. Awesome. Um, but, but what's interesting about it is that although there is, I mean, these guys have broken it down to a science, and, and again, a lot of it is the study of the human mind and how vision itself evolved and how we're supposed to like pick out patterns in the woods to figure out like what's going to attack us yeah, and dude, jump out. I'm us into and, like, it. I cannot wait to buy these. It's books. cool. Um, so the, the principles of it come from that because it's really just about how our brains evolved in the situation that we were in. But the cool thing about coming up with it for users is really starting with what is the question that I'm trying to answer, right? Fundamentally, and you're a market structure guy, what is the thing that I'm trying to unpack? What is that question? And interrogating the data back from there. Um, and so it tends to be about finding either anomalies or patterns, right? Those kind of visual outliers. Um, and it's, it's just a fun, creative process so uh, then, hitting the whiteboard. So then when did you make the move into financial markets? Because you said you were outside of financial markets and then you stepped in. So what was sort of the opportunity to Correct. apply what you had learned in financial markets? And what did you see what, like, as being the opportunity? Was it just totally underdeveloped space for visualization? Yeah, I think, well, so a couple of things. So as I mentioned, I came from other industries. Um, my co-founder in building Chart IQ, who's, who's the genuine brains behind the operation, um, his background is in brokerage technology. So Terry, who you've met personally, mm -hmm. uh, Terry never toots his own horn, but I, I get the opportunity to. Um, back in the early 90s, if you remember ever calling your broker to get a quote, and at one point you had to talk to a human, and then you could actually punch in a ticker symbol using your touchtone telephone. And like that was state of the art of not having to have a physical, per like a person answer the phone. He's the guy that was writing that software for the IVR systems, the, the touchtone telephone systems. What if you had a rotary phone? You had, to, you had to talk <laughs> to a real person, correct. 
Um, for those of you millennials who might be listening and don't know what a rotary phone is, Google it. It was quite the thing. Um, and then when that was state of the art, then the internet started to come about because this was pre-internet. Mm -hmm. um, and Terry was actually the first guy who saw the opportunity of the internet as a way to do trade execution. So quite literally, the first trade that was ever done over the internet, that happened to have been an equity, was done on Terry's software. Wow. Now, uh, quite the engineering achievement, the vision achievement, uh, did a really bad job monetizing it. Uh, a lot of guys made a lot more money than him in the early days of the brokerage space. Uh, you look at the guys that built Daytech and all these brokerages, um, but he's always been in that space and always been kind of ahead of the technology curve. So I've known him for 20 years. His background in brokerage technology, mine in data viz, him in engineering, me in product. Uh, he introduced me to charting and technical analysis. And the first words out of my mouth were, oh, it's data viz for finance. And he looked at me and he was like, it is, but nobody thinks of it that way. Yeah. So you started out building out products for which asset class? It was mostly equities? Was that kind of Terry's background? So, Because when I, I have to be honest, when I think of data viz and finance, I think that equities has it, but yep. then I've seen your stuff and I'm like, this is much better. Where sort of was the equity world when you started looking at this stuff and then what was the, what's the equity world struggling with when it comes to data visualization? That's a great question. So, you know, the, the, the discipline of technical analysis, right? So candlestick charting, all the patterns that people look for, all that kind of stuff, it does continue to change, but fundamentally it, it was invented about 250 years ago in Japan, right? Um, supposedly, and I haven't personally done the math, the uh, best returns of any hedge fund ever was this guy 250 years ago whose name I've forgotten and even at the time couldn't pronounce Japanese name, who was trading rice futures. Um, be a good little uh, background for you. No, I've heard a little bit of this story, but this is also why like the, the Masters of Market Structure series exists because a lot of the people that we talk to end up doing what you're doing right now, which is digging into the annals of history to, to point to something that uh, reinforces what they're trying to do today and what they're trying to bring into the market today. Uh, I think we always believe that we're, we're so much smarter than the earlier generations, oh, yeah. but people have been trying this stuff, doing this stuff for, it sounds like, centuries in terms of candlestick charting. Yeah, and we think about doing it smarter than the, the earlier guys that came before us, and we're generally talking about traders in the 90s, right? We're thinking about like, oh, we're so much, I mean, so much more sophisticated than those guys when it comes to risk management and the pricing discovery and all these things. It's like, no, no, this was, yeah, this was 250 years ago being done on paper um, or papyrus or whatever it was at the time. And the guy was, was raking, the guy was raking it in. I mean, it was truly innovation in the market. So back to us, because I do like to talk about myself. Um, with charting, right, we always joke that there's fundamentally like nothing new in charting, right? We entered an industry across equities, FX, and commodities, um, and obviously fixed income is kind of new to us, but those three core asset classes, everybody already had charting, right? Nobody was saying, oh, I wish I had like a candlestick chart or a point and figure chart, or if only I could like render an Ichimoku cloud. Um, so for us, the actual market opportunity um, was around a technology refresh cycle. So for us, it was about the, the move from .NET and Java on the desktop, 
Flash, Silverlight, and Java applets on the web over to HTML5. And the fact that people need to rebuild all of their systems. So you know, if you think about you know, the move from voice to electronic, right, it's a technology refresh cycle. And so it's not that the trading itself, that the actual process of order matching or whatever it may be speeding up, but it's not fundamentally changing. It's just that suddenly you have an entire new technology stack. So, you know, normally what drives the technology refresh cycle is the new framework, if you will, um, can not only match the basic functionality that the existing framework has, but then it offers the ability for you to go much, Correct. much further. Um, so, so what is this, you know, HTML5 has been lauded as the second coming and sort of like, you know, the, the, the next new new thing. But what are what are the things that people should know for why it started the migration cycle? Because I'm sure yeah. there were other you know um, there were other opportunities, but but not the migration. Yeah. So the the this this industry wide shift over to HTML5 um, is driven, funny enough, more by uh, politics and infighting than it is any sort of technology reasons. So I'm guessing you have an iPhone in your pocket. I'm an Android, an Android guy. guy. I don't, okay. I don't, you know, the politics of, of the way Apple keeps its operating system in its hardware is, it's, I, I don't like it. So, but so funny you should my bring wife that has up. It. <laughs> funny you should bring that up. The whole reason, I mean, not the whole reason, we'll get into some of the advantages of HTML5, but the reason that it was like, okay, we have to get rid of what we used to have and we have to rebuild it now was because of that closed ecosystem. So back when Steve Jobs was still alive, Apple and Adobe got into a big spat because you couldn't run Flash on your iPhone or your iPad. I remember that. And that, that's it. <laughs> that's literally the reason why this is happening. So there have been... And right, wait, well, well, I, wanna, I wanna ask you about this for a quick second. Was this just couldn't come to an agreement um, Steve Jobs doing Steve Jobs stuff. Like, what was the issue? Because, you know, we have seen some kind of crazy things in markets before. Hope, like, thank God, cooler heads prevailed when it came to email. And the original idea behind email was you could only send an email to someone who had the same email domain as mm -hmm. you. So, Hotmail to Hotmail, Yahoo to Yahoo. But somebody said, that's insane, right? But they didn't say that was insane when it came to chatting. So then everything's happening on AOL Messenger, everyone's, everything's happening on Yahoo Messenger, whatever that happens to be. Yep. There's no cross-messaging, though I do think that that's changing. So what, was, what were the politics behind this particular fight? Because this clearly set off a, a revolution that we're, we're in the midst of today. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure there are other technologists that would, would perhaps... Uh, um argue that there were other watershed events, but to me, that's the one. Uh, right, Steve Jobs thought that the user experience of Flash was terrible, right? It was proprietary technology that was owned by Adobe, who, you know, had been a longtime partner of Apple's, right? Um, but to some degree was a competitor as well. Um, but they thought that the user experience was terrible. And so he advocated for HTML5 and thought HTML5 offered a better user experience and would allow you to build an application and deploy it to web and mobile. Okay. And so that was really the thing, was the ability to write it once, deploy it to the iPhone, deploy it to the web. Well, what, what year was this? Because I do remember that seminal moment where it's like, 
the first smartphone showed up and you realized that what you were looking at was going to change the world. So was this argument occurring sort of before the rest of the world had caught up with the idea that everyone's going to be using a smartphone? It was probably around that same, same time period when everybody like, right, because the iPhone came out and changed everything, right? My, my favorite uh, story about the iPhone coming out is when the guys at, at RIM who made BlackBerry were watching the product announcement at the, you know, Steve Jobs on stage or whatever, they didn't believe it. <laughs> I, no, I swear to God, he was giving a demo of the first generation iPhone. He was using it on stage and using it with his finger. They're projecting it on the giant screen. They thought it was a fake because they didn't think it was technically possible at the time. And so that's my, my favorite little thing about Apple was that the iPhone was so far ahead of its time that their primary competitor, like not only wasn't, they weren't like three months behind or six months behind, they were so far behind, they didn't believe that the real thing being demoed on stage was real. They thought it had to be fake. Well, I, I remember my, you know, I had one of those friends that had to have it first. I remember going over to his house and I was using my, what was cool at the time, a flip phone with a fancy oh, yeah. keyboard. Right? Yeah. And um, I remember, hearing my phone's voice as I was looking at this iPhone and my phone was just saying, uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Knew, no, no, no. whatever was going on, he knew. Dead this is man this walking. Is dead yeah. man walking. I will not be using you for much longer. But no, I, I, could, I could actually see that because of, of you know, it, it was one of those things that sort of changed the way that we operate. And so when that normally happens, I think the non-believers are always going to say, like, you know, I actually need to touch this thing before before I'll accept it as being truth. And when and Rim after that basically was never able to recover, right? Correct. And I think it's worth jumping ahead to our industry because obviously you go on a trading floor, no one's using an iPad. Right. So the question is, why did this thing that happened in the world of consumer electronics? yet I go on a trading floor and it's all desktop Windows computers, why does that matter? Well, why, why does that? I mean, I have my own theory. I'd like to hear yours because, you know, the, the whole Apple world doesn't exist in Correct. finance. And that, that's, a, that's an interesting story because, um, you know, I, I, would, I would assume that Apple would love to get into that business, but there's, there's, there's a barrier. Um, so, so what's sort of the underlying fundamental issue for this sort of obsession with PC-based, uh, you know, desktops and, and, and installed apps and all the, the things that we're used to in traditional capital markets. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, Apple, Apple never had momentum in the enterprise more broadly, right? So nowadays you go into a company and maybe some of the developers or executives are on MacBooks, but like five, 10 years ago, it wasn't just finance. You go into any sort of Fortune 500 company, literally no one's on a Mac, right? It just wasn't there. So I think you know the standardization across Windows uh, is just kind of industry-wide or cross-industry. Uh, the move to HTML5, though, right? If we're talking about this iPhone thing being the watershed moment, the question is why does HTML5 matter in capital markets? Absolutely. And, and in enterprise more broadly, it's purely about the speed. Right? It's about how fast people can build a business application um, and deliver functionality to the user. And the tooling and the instrumentation, right? the, the frameworks and the toolkits and the speed at which developers can be productive 
in what we would call web stack, all the different web technologies, is so much faster than it is in Java or .NET or C++. And so if I'm inside a large organization, right, I have my choice of technologies. Now, in HTML5, it's really fast to build things. I can deliver it to my users. They're going to be happier faster. And oh, by the way, all the developers that I want to hire, right, those guys want to be working in the latest, greatest technology. They don't want to be working in, you know, 2002 technology, right? So if you think about it, it's where the talent is, and the talent is there because that's where it's fast to build things. You know, we can build, I mean, you look at, at your tool at BondClick, like, again, I'm sure a ton of work went into it. I'm not trying to, to minimize that, but like to build that same platform in C++ and a client server framework and all this kind of infrastructure, I mean, it would take five times as long. No, you're, first of all, you're 100% right. Was very fast to build what we built, but um, I'm wondering whether the benefits of HTML5 are actually incongruent with the overall culture of large IT groups, because what you're talking about is being leaner, what you're talking about is being faster, and being on the cutting edge. And my experience with a lot of large organizations is that's not really how it's done. Um, and I think one of the major excuses has been, you know, or maybe not even an excuse, one of the impediments has been, we're not talking about, you know, building some new Candy Crush app. What we're normally talking about de developing are tools and, and solutions that are dealing with millions upon millions of dollars of uh, activity, whether it be a market data application or a trading application or, or, or you know anything under the sun yep. in terms of those tools. So just when you get into um, security and when you get into performance and, and anything that could um, potentially hinder the smooth sailing of what you already have, yep. um, I think it just it's sort of an uphill battle. That, that's at least what, what I've heard when this HTML5 commercial I mean, uh, conversation first started to happen. Um, is this similar stuff that you've heard or is it like a little bit different? I mean, I'm sure it's very different than when the conversation first started. Yeah, I mean, when we started six and a half years ago with the idea of building tooling for capital markets around HTML5, whether it's charting or else, uh, otherwise, right, like these conversations weren't happening. Where they were happening, there was validity to that, right? Can it, nobody would believe that we could do what we do with charting where we get better performance than charts that are written in C++ or in, in C Sharp. Uh, you know, we can handle tens of thousands of data points on screen at the same time, streaming updates 20 times a second, coming from multiple exchanges around the world, doing all the calculations. People didn't think that that was possible in the world of JavaScript or HTML5. And the, the short story is, they're valid concerns, um, and they used to be better founded. They're not anymore. But what I will say is, I, I talk with companies all the time, some big companies that have great development teams. They'll say, oh, well, we were looking at building this you know, uh, time and sales blotter. And so it's got a lot, you know, in, think about it, in time and sales in, in equities or FX, right? So you've got like bajillions of data updates. Like, well, we tried to build it in HTML5 and the performance was atrocious. So 
We checked the box, said we tried it, it failed. We're gonna go back and rewrite it in C++. It's like, well, but I, I've seen other people do it. It just means that you did a crappy job of it. Mm -hmm. No offense, right? You can write, and the, the difficult thing I think about the worlds of like JavaScript and way down in the weeds is that you can write really high performing, high security JavaScript that, that performs as well as anything else. You can also write really bad clunky JavaScript that has horrible performance and security characteristics. In the world of like C++, it, it was harder to, to write poor C++. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. No, what it sounds like you're describing is like, um, you know, it's not the instrument, it's who's, who's basically Correct. playing it. Correct. And so perhaps the, just the general, like the expertise had caught up with the, with the availability of HTML5. The, the analogy I would, I would throw out there, uh, I'm always prone to car analogies, right, is Tesla, right? Electric cars been around for forever. Like electric cars were around as and when internal combustion cars first started. Internal combustion just came over. And if you had asked people 10 years ago, like, hey, what do you think about an electric car? People would be like, the performance will suck, the range will be terrible, and it'll be way too expensive. And the first time they get into a Tesla and they hit the accelerator and they get thrown in the back of their seat and it's faster than any other street legal car they can buy, you know, at five times the price, right? No one had built a great electric car yet. And I'm not arguing for Tesla, the company, whether it's a short or long or whether Elon Musk is an idiot or, a, you know, the second coming kind of thing, but just purely around the tech, like suddenly all the GM and Ford and everybody else was like, huh, we need an electric car division, don't we? Right, because they saw, again, that iPhone moment of like, oh, you can build an electric car that outperforms everything else. And so I think you just, you have that with every new technology that comes around. So that actually brings me to a question that I have around, around ChartIQ, which is, um, Oftentimes in capital market space, and I don't know whether you found this to be the quirk when you sort of moved over into the space, but delivering something that's better is not even half the battle. Oh yeah. Um, because I think the end user that we're, that we're dealing with is just a different animal here. Um, so how do you get people to adopt what's better? Yeah. Like what, what, what are you doing at ChartIQ to do that? And I think this is like, for anybody listening to this who has an idea about how to build something, they think it's it's this is awesome. Everyone's going to love it. I will just warn you that <laughs> no matter how much better the thing is, uh, people are still reluctant to change, to move away from what they know, even if it's crappy. I think reluctant is the understatement of the afternoon. Uh, it this this blew my mind, and is very specific to front office and capital markets. Let's be clear, you go into like middle office, people are like, it's better, I'll use it, right? But we talk about traders, portfolio managers, like, you know, uh, sales guys, front office functions, like it could be two times as good, three times as good, four times as good, and maybe. Like, so, so, okay, so you've encountered that. Oh, yeah. You can't just like lay down your arms, like now you've got Correct. to get through that. I have, so, I have payroll so, to make, I can't just give up. Right. So. So what's, what's, what's the plan? Like, how do you get through that? Now, keep in mind, I tracked you down after watching a YouTube video. Correct. So is that a part of it? Or like, what's your, 
what sort of what you what what are the tools in the toolkit to get through yep. this? So this is um, this is probably a good segue or as good as any of how we went from being a charting company to also having a product called Finsemble. So we would be out there selling our charting, and our charting is used by about 275 firms around the world. Um, unfortunately, our sell side customers don't like their names mentioned, but the ones that are public, right? So Faxet, Fidesa, Ready, Trading Technologies, uh, E-Trade, you know, lots really of- isn't The sell side's always, I mean, I just- I know, it's ridiculous. Needless to say, we have a number of <laughs> tier one and tier two yes, sell side firms. Yes, I believe you, firms. Dan, that you, that you have <sighs> people who really like the product. But as if, yeah, anyway, as if that was their big alpha edge in the market and they really didn't want to give it away. So uh, we would go to these, these institutional firms and like, you know, Yahoo Finance serves up our charts to 40 million monthly unique, 40 million monthly unique users. It's outrageous, right? E-Trade is delivering our charts to 3.2 million users wow. through their web browsers, their iPhones, you know, their, their desktop computers. We go to a tier one firm and we would consistently hear, this is awesome. And they would see not only our charting, but they would see visualizations of earnings data and crowd data, estimized data, fundamentals, all these kinds of cool visualizations. They'd be like, this is better than anything we have across our trading desks. Pause, 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 but we're not gonna buy it. And I would like gouge my own eyes out with a spork. And the reason why was because it didn't integrate into the other things that they were using, right? And so what we've got in our industry- So I wanna pause yep. you there for a second. Like give me an example of an integration point that needs to be there because I think that this is one of the yep. most misunderstood things about why even if someone loves what you have, the you've only probably, you're a quarter of the way there. Oh, I, think, yeah. I think integration is the other quarter, and then I think practice, 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 until they adopt is, is the, the last half of it. But, so give me an integration example where you would need an integration point in order for someone to feel like they're getting the most out of the charting software that you have. So if I, um, you know, if I'm chatting with you on whatever chat platform, whether that's Symphony or it's IB or whatever, Right, and I want you to take a look at something. You're my client, or you're another trader on the desk, or whatever. Right, like if I mention a particular, you know, I mention uh, this month's crude oil future contract, or whatever. Well, I want you to be able to right-click on that and spawn a chart, or I want you to be able to drag and drop that ticker symbol to a chart that you already have on the screen and have it launch. Right. If I notice something and I mark up a chart, well, I want to be able to send you a copy of my marked-up chart. And I want to be able to drag and drop it into chat or click a button and send it via email, right? It's those kinds of little things. But I, but I, wanna, I wanna stop you there for one second because this is where um, I just don't think that the capital markets end user, especially my, my vision on it is, you know, obviously it's, it's mostly fixed income. I think they've been denied that type of experience for such a long time and that the, you know, the operating system, for lack of a better word, is a terminal that doesn't have any of that, right? It's starting to get better. Like there are some things we're putting in there that make it a little bit more seamless. But this concept of the ease of use and moving from one thing to another and having it all connected together, it just doesn't, it's yeah. like foreign to the- there's, to, there's bits of it. I mean, if you pull open Bloomberg or Icon or whatever, and let's say you just go ahead and type in that ticker symbol, right? When you type it in, 
you're typing it into a search bar that's going to provide results from all the data sets that are available inside the terminal, right? Global search, right? If I have 20 different vendor applications on my desktop, I have this hodgepodge of fintech apps, I have a hodgepodge of internally built apps, I don't have global search across it. I don't have that contextual search. So you don't think about it that much, but like that is a big user experience thing that, that the terminal does really well. Or if I do click on that ticker and I pull it up in a chart, I want my other three charts that have short time frame, long time frame settings. I want my news feed and I want my trade blotter to all update with that same symbol, right? That, those might not be the fanciest of workflows, um, but that kind of even just basic context sharing. Um, and the, the global search one, I, I think is a great one. I mean, Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters do a great job with search, but they only do a great job with search because they're in a closed environment. They own all the data sets. They own the contact records, right? You search in Bloomberg, you get not results from your CRM, you get results from their directory of users, right? What you want is search across your CRM. You want search across all of your own things. So, you know, a workflow or an integration could be drag and drop. It could be just two windows updating when you update them together. It could be literally, I want to snap my Excel spreadsheet up against a chat window and move them over and drag them off to another window by themselves and get them out of the way or minimize them together. But those are pretty little things that you don't really think about, um, but they're really hard once you get out of the bundled world of the terminal. So that, that kind of like brings us to, to more of the Finsemble conversation because when, when I saw what you had posted on YouTube in which you were basically demoing, snapping, docking, um, so how you could have different applications sort of speaking with each other and, and really what it was to me was you'd built a framework in which you could more easily uh, work across a bunch of different tools. And um, you know, in, my, in, a, in a former life, I was responsible for creating tools for, for corporate bond traders, CDS yep. traders, and, and salespeople. And that's exactly what they wanted. They wanted the ability to create their own desktop experience and then have these things work together so that they weren't, the, the term I used to use was, uh, you know, they weren't playing DJ, opening one app or another app and then mixing back and going to the yeah. other app. So when I saw what you had, I said, if this actually works, right, this is a totally different way in which I could see large financial institutions, particularly on the sell side, like building out their tool suite. Um, so that's sort of where, where, where our story began. We met each other, yep. well, we got reintroduced to each other. So like you built this to get more sales for <laughs> for trying to queue. <laughs> Did you realize, like, sort of, you were actually attacking a larger, more fundamental problem? Like, this is like a happy accident type of thing. It, it, it took us a while to realize, when we started showing the early versions and prototypes to clients, and we started seeing the use cases that they had across front, middle, and back office, um, talking about exactly what you're talking about, which is kind of reclaiming the desktop. Right, and saying, hey, my users want all the things on their desktop to work together, not just the two screens that are dominated by, by Bloomberg, but the other four screens that are a mishmash. 
Um, and we started realizing it was a much bigger opportunity. And, and we still, I mean, don't go wrong, we sell a lot of charts, um, but now charts are one piece of that integrated experience. And, you know, Finsemble, which we, we, we coin as the open terminal, um, does just that, right? It gives you that terminal experience, but with your choice of applications, content, data feeds, right? And so just like in Bloomberg, I can literally just start typing. Well, you know what? In Finsemble, you can just start typing. So right? you, co you combine this with, you know, the uh, bigger, better, faster, H, you know, development that H HTML5 offers you. Like you should be able to turn things a lot quicker in terms of, you know, coming from idea to delivery. Right. And this is, we're on the consulting side. We're talking to, and working with a bunch of dealers and and buy side folks regarding the development of their fixed income uh, front office technology. Mm -hmm. And we haven't gotten one yet to really completely buy in to the HTML5 Finsemble ideology. What's, what's happened is um, we design and then they, the internal IT team says things like, well, there, there won't be enough HTML5 developers out there for us to hire and who knows if it's just a no, seriously, that's, that's something that came back. It's just a fad. Right, just a fad. Um, so we haven't, we haven't gotten that yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to it as a case study yep. because I think that what you're missing, if you don't mind me giving just sort of just feedback on it, you're missing somebody making a truckload of money using a desktop tool through what you've been able to offer them. Once somebody makes a lot of money and they point to this thing like, hey, I just got a better mousetrap than the rest of the market, I think that it gets a whole lot easier. Oh yeah, I mean, and the, the I mean, we, we started off talking about the adoption curve of, of HTML5 and, and certainly the, the feedback that you're getting is very much what we were hearing two, three years ago and with the types of firms that we work with. I don't doubt that it's still happening out there today. What I can say is the, largest asset managers on the planet and the largest sell-side banks on the planet, anything and everything that they build that's new is HTML5 without question, right? They may still be updating old legacy things that are built in .NET or C++. We have not seen a single new project kick off in any of those. So that's a great sign. That's at least, you know, you're getting adoption from people who would oh, yeah. normally people look to. That for. becomes the standard and to use something other than HTML5 you have to justify yourself. Okay, so it's good to know that that's where, we're, where we are with at least that part. Correct, that now, will filter downstream. Okay, so then does that start to force the Finsemble type solution as a way to bring all of these things together? Is that is that what you're seeing like in the next, the next 12, 24 months? Like, yeah, so the, the, the interesting thing, right, we were kind of talking about perhaps the laggards of the adoption curve. If you look at the early adopters, Right, if you name a fintech company, right, whether it's BondClick or anybody else, of course it's built in HTML5. What else would it be built in? Like, if you're starting a company in the past five years, I have to play this podcast for someone who just told me they weren't going to do that. But go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Whoever you are, if you're listening, Chris has my contact I'm, I'm info. I'm sending, it, I'm sending it to him or her. So, um, yeah, of course it's built in HTML5. Like, there's no. Uh, I know one company, I can think of one conversation like three years ago where they were like, no, we're going to build Java Swing for the desktop. And we were like, what are you talking about? And they just rebuilt an HTML5 like two years later. 
So, but, but if we look at that early part of the adoption curve, right, what you end up with is tab proliferation, right? Yep. You open your computer, how many tabs do you have open in Chrome? Right? I just got off the phone with a, a prospective customer this morning, right? Buy side firm, they've been building new stuff in, in their case, Angular, which is kind of a, a framework on HTML5, building new cool stuff, their users love it, everything's in its own tab, right? That's a terrible user experience. A, browsers are bloated and you know, mm -hmm. if you have 50 tabs open, your computer's gonna grind to a halt, You're switching back and forth between things, things don't talk to each other, it's terrible. And, and so they saw the Ensemble and they were like, okay, we can take everything out of the world of tabs. The users can lay them out on the screen the way that they want, right? Snap, dock, tab, tile, organize, save their layouts exactly the way that they want them. But more importantly, right, we call that physical integration. Then there's logical integration, which Fensemble does as well, just to say that we need to have a workflow engine under the hood that allows those guys to then start building the pathways between the applications, whether that's simple context sharing or it's a much more complex, hey, when the sales guy send something to the customer automatically log it into the CRM. Or when a you know, trade happens, send it off to here to get recorded, right? All those kinds of more complex workflows. Um, and so they want to be able to offer that, that experience. And so uh, I think what we see in the world of FinTech vendors where there's so many awesome little FinTechs, the, the chart IQs of the world, that just make charting or just make a blotter or just make a risk analytics tool or just make a TCA tool, uh, like they're awesome, but they're all locked inside their little silos of browser tabs. And this is where, this is where it's going to take, I think, just better articulation of how you put all these things together. So you must be able to solve for one annoying workflow issue now. You're talking about you know, something that could be quite complex, but I think that you know, we're, we're closer to the Flintstones than we are in the Jetsons here. So, 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 so we need to you know, show me the car that can, I can yeah. drive with my feet. So, so I'm glad you bring that up because uh, you, you uh, foreshadowed this earlier in the conversation, which is traders are the most recalcitrant users ever, right? I don't want something new. Don't give me something new. I like what I have, thank you very much. And so we, we came out with this Fensemble thing. People are really excited about it. Some of our firms have these projects to re-envision their desktop, these very kind of broad, very lofty, very ambitious goals. Other customers are taking a much more incremental approach and it's interesting. So we built Fensemble thinking about the world of HTML5. And we started talking to our customers and they said, well, that's great. Everything new that we're building is in HTML5. But 80% of what dominates the desktop for my users, .NET, Java, C++. It's old, yeah. So we ended up building support in Fensemble where all the capabilities of Fensemble, single sign non-authentication, shared data storage, workspace management and layouts, global search, hotkeys, all the things that Fensemble does, there's 20 of them, all work not just in HTML5, but in .NET and C++ as well. .NET, Java, and C++. And so the idea is start taking the things you have that your users love, start putting them into the framework, and start making them incrementally better. 
right? So whether it is a web component you have or a .NET app or a Java app, you start putting them in and today, those are two separate applications. <clears throat> Tomorrow, they snap and dock together. The day after, they start sharing context with each other. The day after, you can drag and drop between them. The day after, oh, when I boot up my computer, I don't need to sign in separately to every application, centralized single sign-on, right? How do I take the apps that my users already have, whether it's a new thing like a symphony or an old thing like a, you know, whatever trade blotter, and how do I start making them incrementally better for my users? And going back to that speed factor for HTML5, how do I start showing my users that, hey, you're not getting an update every 18 months. Mm -hmm. You're able to sit down with us and we can bang out a new feature and we can deliver it and deliver you value in like a week or two. So as an example, um, we're working with a, a tier one sell side bank with Fensemble in their equities division um, and they want to deliver BI, right? Business intelligence mm -hmm. reporting, self-service BI it's called. Uh, it's a really cool product called Yellowfin. I'll give them a plug. So they want to deliver this tool called Yellowfin to their users so that their users can mine their own data and create their own reports. Right? Just like in a pivot table in Excel, drag and drop your columns, pick your chart type, create this little widget, post it. <clears throat> well, all of that lives inside a browser. And they didn't really know how to integrate that into the overall user experience. So they introduced us to Yellowfin and they said, can you quote unquote fensembleize this? And so within, I think it took two days of engineering time, we had their product ripped apart into its constituent bits, reassembled using fensemble, and each user automatically logs into to, to Yellowfin, single sign on, provisions them for what data they should have access to. They can build individual reports and widgets, and those become individual tiles on their desktop and those individual tiles talk together. So as a, an end user, I can say, I really want to see a real-time chart of all my trade volume for the day filtered by counterparty. Cool, create this little widget, it takes about 30 seconds, tear it off, stick it on my, on my desktop wherever I want, snap it into place. Create another one, now I can link them together and I can click on one and it'll update the other. So they cross-tab and cross-filter across each other. So it has two days of engineering time to deliver an entire kind of self-service BI tool to the user. But this is, this is where, and you know, again, more unsolicited advice from a podcast host. But I think you make this point with your demonstrations. I mean, when you see what you're talking about, as opposed to oh, describing yeah. it, and this is audio, so we are, we are, <laughs> Go on our YouTube right. page, youtube.com forward slash chart IQ. There's a demo of the, the Yellowfin integration. Highly recommend that because I think when you see it as an end user, you realize what have we been missing out on oh, yeah. by, by basically following a path that died probably 10 years ago in terms of how you develop things and how you introduce the user experience. And that path died, but we're still living in, in, in sort of the past because we have a situation, I think, in capital markets fintech, it's a two-pronged situation where the dominant central system, the operating system, also delivers the tools, and they don't seem to be that interested in sharing the desktop yep. of the end user. 
And then you have the situation, which is what you described. A lot of stuff built in old frameworks. And so the internal IT team, you don't get, there's no glory for basically redoing something. Yep. And so you're, you're kind of, um, I think it just slows down the adoption of something that should be happening because it makes total sense in terms of the long-term costs. Have you guys ever done any analysis on how much money you think people can save going this sort of HTML5 Finsemble route? So we've been, we've been talking with a couple of external firms to do like a proper third-party analysis of that because if we did it ourselves, nobody would believe it. Um, such are the, the ways of being a vendor. Well, you'd be surprised in the world today, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. People would be like, fake news, I don't believe it. Exactly. You know? So, um, but yeah, no, it's interesting, but I think, you know, there's, there's the financial side, but then the ability for the business to go to IT and say, we want data mining tools, right? We're, we're not satisfied with whatever, Crystal Reports or ClickView or Tableau or whatever you guys have rolled out. We want this self-service thing where my users can create their own reports. And like two weeks later, have it pushed out to desktops and not just pushed out, but pushed out and seamlessly integrated to everything else on the desktop. Like that is, talk about glory, right? Like when you can actually say yes to the business and like give them the thing that they're asking for, give it to them quickly, give it to them cheaply, so I actually can start to hear where your pitch has probably changed. Am I correct in assuming that initially a big part of your Finsemble pitch was to the front office and now you're really pitching the IT team like if you had this kit, you could kick ass? Is that something that's been added to it or, or did, did I get Funny this Funny enough, we're, we're the, the other way around where, you know, we've been... I mean, we'll, we'll pitch to anybody who will listen, of course. We're, you know, <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta pay those bills somehow. But... Um, what's interesting is that there's this, this tension that exists, and it's existed in every company I've ever worked for, uh, outside of capital markets and inside, between IT and the business, right? Between yeah. developers and the users. And say, oh, I just want this little thing. Can you do it? It's like, oh, that's going to be six weeks. Wait, wait, what? Like, yeah, yeah. changing it from purple to orange is going to take six weeks? How is that possible? It's going to cost a half million dollars. How is that possible? And so there's this kind of... It, it's bi-directional mistrust and frustration. Oh, you don't understand how hard it is to build these things. Oh, you don't understand how much my guys need this thing and how much money we're losing. Right? Neither side understands. And so you know, we want to, as much as we can, be the marriage counselor and bring those sides together and say, actually, you know what? Like, There's a way for you as the developers to look like rock stars and a way for you as the business to get the things that you want quickly and you can both be happy with it. Yeah, no, I, I think that that is, it's massively important for getting everybody on the same page. There is that distrust. I think it starts with the fact that business really doesn't understand the technical side for development. They just want something. And then I'd have to say that on the technical side, I don't think they quite understand what business is asking for a lot. Not because they don't, they don't have the capability to do it. I don't think, in, especially in capital markets fintech, fintech I don't think that the business takes the necessary steps towards technology in terms of formalizing their ask, in terms of you know doing things like writing specs. Um, interestingly enough, the company I worked for before doing this, they didn't use specs at all. And I was shocked. 
just by way of, we, we're just going to talk about it and then develop. And to me, I found that to be amazing because obviously the, the build can go off the reservation quite quickly. And I think that's why you get this padding. This is why you get this, it's going to be six weeks when it, it feels like it should take six days. Because yep. people just want to make sure that they have themselves covered. Because the only time there, there aren't cheers for technologists, they're only, technologists are only noticed when things are not working. Correct. There's very little upside opportunity. So, you know, we, we talk about this even just, uh, again, uh, tips to anybody uh, who's a, a startup founder listening. You know, we talk about this with our sales team all the time, right? That the people that are bringing us in, they're championing our technology, whether it's charting or ensemble, right? They're putting not just money, but political capital on oh, the yeah. line for something. And if it all goes flawlessly and they reinvent the desktop and they give these users global search and a Bloomberg-like experience across all their applications, these complex workflows, it's gonna be like pat on the back and an MD two layers up the, the chain is gonna take credit for the work that you did. If it fails, right, it's a career limiting move. And so we're always, you know, as a vendor, we're always concerned with like, well, what are the risks that our champions are taking? How do we make sure that we make them successful? How do we make sure that we limit the downside risk for them? It's, it's an asymmetric equation, whereas on the business side, right, like bonus season comes around, you get re rewarded for taking a lot of risk. Well, as someone who in a former life would have been one of those champions, I can tell you the weapons, the weapons that I would have used would have been to articulate the cost and the risks for not doing it, not the benefits of doing it because the benefits of doing it are too difficult to formally articulate. Yep. But I know right now what the costs are for, for building and maintaining all the tools that we have. So let's assume that I, I, if I bring this thing in, I can reduce those costs by 25%. Now the conversation should change because now I'm talking about millions of dollars over time and that's where I've pushed the discussion. Not about all of the new fancy new tricks that are going to happen because the people who make the decisions aren't used, they're, they're not interested in fancy tricks. What they're interested in is bottom line business. And so that, that's just coming from a former yep. you know, business manager who had to do things like this and push ideas like this through the presentation was more of let me attack the tangible rather than promote the intangible. Yep. And and so as much if you can get a study commissioned around, or you know just a, a study commissioned around how um, what you guys can do from a development standpoint, like it's it's almost like you know test case A versus test case B. Like if it can illuminate yep. those differences, and then I guess. You know, you have to embellish a little bit as well, but that's that's basically what a lot of people are doing to probably keep you out of the technology stack, embellishing on all the problems that could go wrong. But um, that's the view from my seat. I mean, have you have you used that at all as a technique? Yeah, I think you know, there's always um, people have a hard time quantifying soft cost. Yes. How much does it really cost me to maintain that old thing, right? Like. Nobody spends a lot of time really teasing that apart and trying to estimate. So it is hard to get people to own up to the cost of just maintaining the weight and momentum that you're carrying forward with you. 
Um, so I think that's that's always hard, but uh, that's that's enterprise technology sales in every industry. Yes. Right? Like, oh, I've got a team that maintains that. They do it. They do it in their sleep. It's like, no, they don't. They use actual so this hours. This is not that you just for finance. For. I mean, you have that. You've seen this in other industries. That oh you're... yeah, no, that that exists everywhere. That's all these these same dynamics, and it's it's interesting because I, um, of course, we got introduced through an investor, but uh, talking with some investors who. Like they do capital markets, fintech, like our investors illuminate, our lead investor for our A only does capital markets, fintech, right? That's their background. But talking with some other investors that do like enterprise software more generally, right? They're like, oh yeah, no, the problems that you're experiencing, like the way they look at their portfolio is like all these companies are having the exact same problems, just in different verticals and trying to kind of collab, you know, cross pollinate between them in that way. When I was in enterprise infosec, same thing. Oh, well, you know, my guys will just build this over a weekend in the space between the minutes using some open source tools and I'm sure it'll be institutional grade and robust and won't cost us anything to maintain. Okay, got it, sure. Um, you know, all those, um, I have to challenge my, even as a small company, we're 40 people. I always have to challenge my own developers who are brilliant guys like, wait, should we really be writing that or is there something that we can pull off the shelf that does it, right? Well, I think it always happens when you get bigger. But, you know, just the overcoming the challenge is, is you know, what separates the people who talk about the idea from the people who execute it. So um, that's one of the main reasons why I started this podcast, so people could hear more war stories. I, I appreciate um, just the insights you brought to this conversation because... I think that the software development side of um, uh, of the discussion has has not really been at the forefront, and it needs to be because all of these new fangled applications and ideas they need a place to land, and if they don't have a place to land uh, because they're stuck behind tabs or they never get on the desktop in the in the first place, I think that the pace of innovation is going to be artificially slowed down for quite some time. So I'm rooting for you and the Finsomble team. Well, thank you. Dan, really appreciate your time. And um, where are we going to eat after this? We have a dinner, right? We do have a dinner. Uh, Kate picked a place, <laughs> which is a good idea. You should always let Kate pick the restaurant instead of me. Shout out to Kate. Yeah. Um, but thank you for having me on the podcast. Thanks to anybody who's uh, still listening to the, the very end. Uh, <laughs> appreciate your time. And uh, Chris, as always, good to see you. Pleasure.